Good morning. It's a great honor and privilege for me to be opening the Word with you today. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We read a good portion of that already. Paul is talking about what the church looks like when it's working according to its design. The leaders are not doing the work of the ministry. That's a shock to most Americans. We think, are we paying those guys to do that? No, they are equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. And as that process goes forward, the church is built up in love as the saints begin to be discipled and they begin ministering to one another and loving one another, speaking the truth to one another in love, exercising their spiritual gifts, then the congregation is built up in unity, it's built up in love, in Christ-likeness, and the church builds itself up in love. So out of that proper functioning of the local church, flows things like evangelism. Uh, if the life of Christ is really happening in the congregation, people aren't just showing up, listening to a lecture and leaving. Instead of being a preaching point, the church actually becomes a community of faith. Then as Christ is lifted up, he draws people to him and the church fulfills its mission of making disciples making disciples of the members and they in turn helping to make disciples of others. People are attracted. And this all works if in fact uh, the life of Christ is being built up in each one of us by this process. In verse 25, which is the verse we're going to be concentrating on today, it's a transitional verse. Paul's been describing this is what Christian growth is all about. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like when the church is functioning properly and growth is taking place. And therefore we are walking worthily of our calling. Starting with verse 25 we get in then to the specifics. What does that look like in very specific terms? And the very first one of them is this. Therefore laying aside falsehood speak truth each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. What is truth? asked jesting Pilate and would not stay for an answer. So wrote Francis Bacon. In a day when the very concept of truth is under attack, how are we to understand and practice the exhortation to be truth speakers. If you are willing to stay for an answer, I will attempt one in the next few minutes. The verse on which we are concentrating today stands at the beginning of a new section in the book of Ephesians. Having taught us the purpose of the Christian life, starting back in chapter 1, to glorify Christ, the source of the Christian life, God and His grace, the nurture of the Christian life, the spiritual gifts and ministry of the church, and the motive of the Christian life to walk worthily of our calling and gratitude for God's grace and our position and our privilege. To live out of love for Jesus Christ, Paul now begins to talk about the specifics of the Christian life. And the very first one is the necessity of speaking truth with our neighbors. Now, 
Why does that come first? I mean, we already knew we weren't supposed to lie. But when we understand this exhortation in its immediate context in Ephesians and its larger context in the biblical view of truth, I think we'll be able to see that it has a lot more to say to us than just that. We will see why indeed it is the first exhortation in learning to walk worthily of our calling. This truth speaking is rooted in the source of truth. It is defined by the nature of truth. It is found in the context of truth and it leads to the practice of truth. But we'd better spend first a few minutes thinking about the need for truth. Because today, the very existence of truth is not something that we can take for granted. Cynicism about truth is not a new thing. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Supreme Court Justice from the turn of the 20th century, once cynically defined truth as the majority opinion of that nation that can lick all the other nations. What's truth? Truth is the majority opinion of that nation that can lick all the other nations. Well, that cynicism has risen to a fever pitch in the so-called postmodern world. We have accepted as a given and even tried to make a virtue of the conditions that George Orwell portrayed as a horrible defeat of our humanity in his novel 1984. How many of you read 1984, by the way? That's a risingly good number. I am impressed. 1984 was a novel which George Orwell wrote in 1948. That's how he got the year 1984. He simply reversed the digits of the year he was in. And he was predicting a future in which computers, which were brand new, I mean, they had just come along in the late 40s. He was imagining a, 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 a future in which computers were, could be used to control the world. And a totalitarian government using computers to control access to media and to uh, whatever version of truth they wanted out there and eliminate everything else has created a society in which the central character, Winston, is trying to live. Now, 1984 is, is 30 plus years ago now, and the society Orwell predicted never developed because what he could not have predicted was the decentralization of computing power that came along with the uh, invention of the internet. Uh, in his thinking, only a government or a large corporation would have the power to have a computer and use this technology. Now, everybody has computers that people couldn't even have dreamed of back then, and the internet has kind of decentralized that power. So we haven't ended up living in exactly the society of 1984 that Orwell depicts, but some of the issues he raised are definitely issues we're still dealing with today. The inside of the main character Winston's head reads now as a chilling prophecy indeed. Here's a quotation from the book. At this moment, for example, in 1984, if it was 1984, Oceania was at war with Eurasia and in alliance with East Asia. In no public or private utterance was it ever admitted that the three powers had at any time been grouped along different lines. Actually, as Winston well knew, it was only four years since Oceania had been at war with East Asia. But that was merely a piece of furtive knowledge that he happened to possess because his memory was not yet under control. 
The frightening thing, he reflected for the 10,000th time, was that it might all be true. If the party could thrust its hand into the past and say of this or that event, it never happened. That surely was more terrifying than mere torture and death. And so everything's gone online, which means the government can change the truth. That is, all they have to do is click a few keys and every single newspaper report from whatever year it is now reads what the party wants it to say. And if you remember something different, you can't go find a copy that proves you were right because everything has changed and everybody's seeing the exact same thing when they look it up on the 1984 version of Google. Winston knows that he knows the truth. The government's lying through its teeth, but you can't prove it because all the records have been changed. Winston knows that he knows the truth, but where did that knowledge exist, he asked. Only in his own consciousness, which in any case must soon be annihilated. End of quote. Now, I don't know if a more chilling line has ever been written. Winston's grasp on the truth is horribly insecure because he knows he has no other basis for it than the flickering neurons of his own brain. When he dies, when his consciousness is annihilated, then where will the truth be? How will the party's lies be combated? They will reign supreme and it will be as if the other version of things, the one actually corresponding to the way the world was, had never even existed. Now, this is not just a dilemma faced by fictional characters. When I lived in Atlanta, I used to attend an annual silent march that we had there to honor the victims of the abortion holocaust. There would be about 3,000 marchers walking silently through the streets of town to the steps of the Capitol building. And it's it was a memorial for all the people who had died from abortion. No slogans, nothing, just this quiet march. 3,000 people through the streets of town. About 50 or so counter demonstrators would show up to heckle us. Now, have you ever been at an event that was actually important enough to show up on the five o'clock news and then gone home and watched it? I really encourage you to put yourself in a position to have this experience at some point. It will be most enlightening and, and really kind of scary. So I go home and watch the event on the six o'clock news. Now no actual lies were told, but the camera angles and the editing of the film would give the impression that the two groups were about equal in size. And then equal time for both sides, right? I mean, that's the law. You have to give equal time to both sides. The paid professional speaker flown in by the pro-choice group would be interviewed. And this would be paired with a microphone being stuck into the face of some unprepared rural housewife. Not an accurate representation of reality at all. In fact, in effect, the entire reporting was a bald-faced lie twisted to support the liberal agenda of the media, which is anti-pro-life and very positively pro-choice. Okay, well, where was the truth about that event once it was over? It was inside the heads of the few thousand people who were there. 
Where was the falsified, skewed, and manipulated image of the truth? It was in the heads of the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who watched it on TV. And how long would the really true picture of things be able to remain in those few thousand heads? Only a few more decades at most. But the false edited images would be archived to be accessed again and again indefinitely. You see the problem? See, the fact that we're not literally living the way 1984 depicts it has blinded us to the fact that the issues Orwell was dealing with in that novel of the fragility of our hold on truth are right in our faces and, and most of us don't even see it. If truth exists nowhere but in our own heads, then it is so subjective as to be meaningless and so fragile as to be doomed to extinction. It is really irrelevant. Only the image matters. And if we accept that version of reality, then everyone can create his own image and who's to say which one is better than the others. Might as well accept this situation, says the postmodernist, and enjoy the freedom it gives you. For if there is no truth, there can be no legitimate authority, no universal laws that have any validity beyond what society grants them, and nobody can tell you what you can or cannot do. And truth really is the majority opinion of that nation that can lick all the other nations. But that way lies madness and chaos and the death of thousands of innocent preborn children, which could not be maintained if our society really did have unfettered access to unedited truth about those issues. Now, it's a bracing thing to realize that the Christian and the Christian alone is not left in this precarious position. So I've, I've been talking up to this point as if our only access to truth was the flickering neurons inside our heads. The Christian is the only person who does not face this intractable dilemma, for he can believe that even when his own mind is asleep, even as his own mind is deceived, even if his own mind becomes demented, even if his own mind is dead, truth cannot be lost. Why not? Because God sees. God sees and God remembers perfectly, accurately, reliably, exhaustively, and forever. Postmodernists keep saying there is no truth because there's no God's eye view of the world. But there is. God has one. And he not only sees, he has spoken in his word. And that is why we can believe that truth is more than just the passing opinion of the powerful, more than just the majority opinion of that nation that can lick all the other ones, more than just the version of things favored by Big Brother, more than just the lie that is currently being told most loudly and insistently. And we can believe this because of the source of truth, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. So truth speaking is mandated by the need for truth. Our society has completely lost its grip on it. And sadly, many Christians are floating along on that same stream, thinking in the same ways. 
Truth speaking is mandated by the need for truth and it is rooted in the source of truth. Now, as we were going through this passage in Ephesians 4, Paul had already alluded in verse 21 to the fact that truth is in Jesus. If you look back to verse 21, you'll see that statement. Truth is in Jesus. That's the foundation for the exhortation in verse 25. Indeed, he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way to the Father. He is the source of anything that can be called the Christian life in general. For it is not we who live, but Christ who lives in us. It is Christ in us who is the hope of glory. And he is also specifically the source of truth. It is because we know Christ that we can claim to know or to speak truth. Well, how is this so? The source of truth is first the decree of Christ. The source of truth is first the decree of Christ. He is the eternal logos, the word of the Father who was with him in the beginning. He is therefore the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lord of creation. It was he who said, let there be light, and there was light. It was he who said, let there be a firmament in the heavens, and it was so. It was he who said, let the sea and the land bring forth living creatures after their kind, and it was so. It was he who said of these things that they were good. He therefore defines truth through his word. What he says goes. What he says is. What he decrees is the basis of truth, the ground of truth, even the cause of truth. What he decrees is true by definition and not one jot nor tittle of it can pass away until all of it is fulfilled. The source of truth then is the decree of Christ. But in an even deeper sense, the source of truth is the character of Christ. In a deeper sense, the source of truth is the character of Christ. For his decrees are not arbitrary exercises of raw power imposed on a helpless world because he can, but rather they flow from his very nature. They flow from who he is. He is true, for he is faithful. He is true, for he keeps his covenant. He is true, for he does only what he sees the Father doing. He is just. He does what is right, even if it leads him to a cross. He is loving. He is true to his own, even when it leads him to a cross. His decrees, his mighty acts, and his personal sacrifice all flow from the same place in the heart of his character, which makes him true to the Father, true to his word, and true to his people. It is in this sense that the statement of verse 21 that truth is in Jesus is the very foundation for any truthful living or speaking that we ourselves may be doing. So what then is this truth that flows from him? Truth speaking is mandated by the need for truth. It is rooted in the source of truth, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is defined by the nature of truth. What is truth? asked jesting Pilate and would not stay for an answer. And the whole time the answer was standing right in front of him. The most basic root meaning of the biblical words for truth, Hebrew emeth, Greek aletheia, the basic root meaning of both of those words is faithfulness. Faithfulness. That is what flows from the character of Christ who is faithful to the Father, who does only what he sees the Father doing. 
See, people may be described as true if they are faithful and faithful in every sphere of life. If they are faithful to the facts. I think that's the most obvious form of truth, but not necessarily the most profound. If they are faithful to the facts, if they are faithful to their covenants, if they are faithful to their friends, if they are faithful to their mission, if they are faithful to God, if they are faithful to His Word. All these kinds of faithfulness are viewed as flowing from the same wellspring in the character of the individual. And that is why the character of the Christ, who did only what he saw the Father doing, is the source of truth, of that kind of well-orbed and rounded faithfulness in us. So, speaking truth, when Paul says, speak truth, each one of you with your neighbors, he's not referring just to technical accuracy of statement alone, but that the whole life of faithfulness and integrity that makes such truthfulness, even of content, possible. Now, we have reduced truth in the modern world to faithfulness to the facts. But that's only part of the biblical concept, and although it is a necessary part. Postmodern thinkers often make truth seem even less than that, when in fact it is much more, not less. Faithfulness to the facts is a necessary but not a sufficient condition of true speech. A statement cannot be true unless it is factually correct, but a statement can be factually impeccable and still not be true speech. Emeth, aletheia, faithfulness must stand behind the facts even as it does in Jesus. In this sense, the opposite of truth would be double-mindedness. The opposite of the true man would be the double-minded man that James describes, who is unstable in all his ways. And it's easy, I think, to see why this is so. If I am single-minded, then I am undivided in my loyalties. There is no ongoing competition for the throne of my heart. It belongs to Christ alone. Now, when that is true, you can depend on it that I will mean what I say. Why wouldn't I? But if my loyalties are divided, if I am of two minds, then I must of necessity be unstable in all my ways and therefore completely untrustworthy. For if I have two minds, then how do you know that the one which affirms A today will be the one in evidence tomorrow? Maybe the other mind, maybe the other half of my mind will then be saying B. If I have two minds, how do you know the side of me which made a promise today will be the one in control when it comes time to keep that promise tomorrow? Well, worse, how do I know that? You cannot, and I cannot. A good synonym of this biblical concept of truth, therefore, would be integrity. What's integrity? Think about the resemblance between the word integrity and the word integer. Now, some of you are going to have to reach way back in your memory, you know, to high school math and remember what an integer is. Uh, what is an integer? It's a whole number. One is an integer, two is an integer, one half is not an integer, 0.587 is not an integer. An integer is a whole number. Integrity, then, is the wholeness the single-mindedness in devotion to Christ, the source of truth, which makes truthfulness on our part possible. Christ modeled this virtue when he did only what he saw the Father doing, when his meat and drink was to do the will of the Father. That is the focus of faithfulness, 
the terminus of truth. And if Christ is in your life, he must bring a measure of this quality with him. To be conformed to his image is to be conformed to this. For then and only then will, be, will we be imeth, aletheia, faithful. And then and only then can we be trusted. Then and only then will we be true. Truth speaking then is mandated by the need for truth. Our society doesn't have it. It is rooted in the source of truth, the Lord Jesus Christ, his decrees and even more his character. It is defined by the nature of truth, which is faithfulness, and it is found in the context of truth. Now, biblical truth speaking is never simply truth speaking in the abstract. It is truth speaking which is faithful, not only to the facts, but also to God and to our neighbor. It's therefore always understood in a social or relational context. I mean, just think back to the Ten Commandments. How is it phrased? Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's the context in which the commandment to tell the truth is given. So it involves not just how we relate to the facts, but how also how we relate them and ourselves to God and to each other. This truth-telling, therefore, is most specifically to happen in the context of the church. Look back to our verse again. We are to do it because we are members one of another. That's talking about the church. It flows out of that passage. It's describing what the church looks like when it's working the way it's supposed to, producing the effect of spiritual growth and building up the body in love and very specifically, the first thing that means is we speak the truth with one another in the context of the church, the body of Christ, because we are members of one another. So this is not just a repetition of the command not to bear false witness against our neighbor. It's an application of it to the more specific and focused community, which is the community of faith, the body of Christ. You're not supposed to bear false witness against your neighbor, whoever he is. And if your neighbor is your fellow Christian, your fellow member of the body of Christ, it becomes even more important. So this is a specific application of that commandment to the community of faith, which is the body of Christ. Well, why does such an application need to be made? I mean, why wouldn't we speak truth in the church? Seems to me there are at least two peculiar temptations to unfaithful speech that we encounter in the church and especially there. The first is gossip. It is no exaggeration to say that gossip is one of the most deadly weapons Satan has in his arsenal against the church. I have known nothing in my time in the pastorate, I have known nothing that is more damaging to our ability to function as Christ designed us to. And I don't know anyone who's been in pastoral ministry who will not tell you the same thing. What is gossip? Gossip is sharing information about our neighbor outside of the biblical parameters for the use of such information. And what are those parameters? They're found in Matthew 18, 15 to 18. If your brother sins, go and discuss it with somebody else. No, that's not what it says. If your brother sins, go and talk about it behind his back. No. Go and reprove him in private. Now, if he doesn't repent, there are further procedures that can be invoked. 
But most people mess it up and get the whole process off track right from the very start. It is at this point that an understanding of the holistic biblical view of truth that we've been describing becomes essential. For it does not matter that the information shared is accurate. It is no justification that the information you convey is true in that merely secular sense. Factual accuracy is a necessary but not a sufficient condition of truthfulness. It's possible for your words to be truthful in that very limited and sub-biblical sense, but still to be unfaithful, to be untrue to your brother and your sister. You see, to speak truth in the biblical sense, in the full biblical sense, I must not only be faithful to the facts, yes, I have to do that, but I have to be faithful to the facts in such a way that I am also faithful to God and faithful to my neighbor, the one to whom I am speaking, and faithful to my neighbor, the one about whom I am speaking. Unless you're faithful on every single one of those counts, you're not really speaking truth the way the Bible wants us to do it. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with your neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, a second particular temptation to untruthfulness that we encounter in the church is in the area of our testimony. What? Our testimony? Have you never been tempted to doctor yours just a little, just a wee bit to make it more dramatic, to make it fit better with the theologically driven expectations of the congregation or parachurch group you're trying to impress and be accepted by? Never been tempted to tweak it just a little bit to make it more honoring to Christ? <clears throat> As Bacon reminds us, truth is a naked and open daylight that doth show the masks and mummeries of the world not half so stately and daintily as candlelight. Doth any man doubt that if there were taken out of men's minds vain opinions, flattering hopes, false valuations, imaginations as one would and the like, but it would leave the minds of a number of men poor, shrunken things, full of melancholy and indisposition and unpleasing to themselves. End of quote. Now, I think we've all heard testimonies at some point with dramatic claims that on closer examination die the death of a thousand qualifications. I once heard a Christian lady loudly proclaim in a Bible study that we were both part of that she was believing God for a painless childbirth. I'm believing God for a painless childbirth. Well, biblical faith is always in response to God's word, trusting his specific promises. So where does God promise this? In fact, doesn't he actually promise precisely the opposite? Now, this lady's belief then was presumption, not faith. And this was discovered after she was delivered. For she had obligated herself to produce a testimony which required, let us say, a certain artistry in the selection of words. No, of course she'd had no pain. Had she not believed God for that? There was, however, a certain amount of <clears throat> discomfort. So well-meaning so false. Now I ask you, what is the unbeliever's response to such language likely to be? 
What does it do to the credibility of the gospel? And so we tempt the enemies of God to blaspheme. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Do I need to belabor the importance of truthfulness in the church? For there we are representing to the world not only the message but the very character of Christ. There we appear as his people, as those supposedly being transformed into his image. And ironically, of course, that puts pressure on us, we think, to appear actually better than we really are. But that's going to backfire every time. The church's ministry, the support we're supposed to find there, the life we're supposed to live there, all of that becomes impossible without trust. And trust is impossible without faithfulness, without truth. And truth in the full biblical sense, is impossible without Christ. All right then. True speaking is mandated by the need for truth. It is rooted in the source of truth, Christ. It is defined by the nature of truth, faithfulness. It is found in the context of truth, the church. And it leads to the practice of truth. How then can we learn to do better at speaking the truth to one another in the context of the church? Let me briefly suggest three ways. First, do not boast. This is related to that whole testimony thing. First, remember that grace by its very nature is opposed to boasting. Ephesians 2.9 has already taught us that. Salvation is by grace through faith alone and not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, why is this truth relevant here? Because of the following dynamic that leads us to untruthfulness. We are not open and transparent with one another because we are insecure. We are insecure because in spite of the doctrine we say we believe, our self-worth is still too much rooted in self, in performance, rather than in the gospel of God's grace. So we have to play games with the truth in order to magnify our performance, our spirituality to ourselves and to others. Only when our self-worth is rooted firmly, as St. Paul roots it, in Christ alone and in His grace alone, so that His faithfulness begins to live in us, can we begin to be able to be as open and transparent as biblical truth requires. First, do not boast. Second, do not gossip. Neither a gossiper nor a listener be. We think if we avoid the first half of that equation, if we're not the active disseminator of, disseminator of the gossip, we think we're not gossiping. And we are so wrong. Not only must we be careful not to talk about our neighbors behind their backs, but we must not enable others to do so either. And there's a simple way to make sure we are avoiding both ends of the chain of gossip. When someone starts talking about so-and-so in ways that you're not completely sure are appropriate, I recommend that you always just simply ask a very simple question. Do you have so-and-so's permission to be sharing this with me? Do you have so-and-so's permission to be sharing this with me? And if the answer is not an unqualified yes, the conversation needs to be gently but firmly ended right there. It'll be an effective reminder of our mutual responsibility, not only to speak accurately, but to use information in ways that are faithful and true, not just to the facts, but to God and our neighbor as well. 
Finally, trust in God. If you want to speak the truth, you have to really trust God. Learn to trust the Father and therefore to trust the facts which belong to Him. You hear me? It's because we trust the Father that we're able to trust the facts which belong to Him. It is because we do not trust the Father that we are not able to trust the facts which are His facts. He does not need us to shade or doctor the truth. He does not need us to pretend to be more confident than we are. He does not need us to pretend to be more spiritual, more sanctified, or in any other way better than we are. All these pretenses ultimately stem from a lack of faith. How is God, how is the church to help us with our real problems if we're not real about them? And we will never be real. We will never be true until we have learned to trust him. And why should we trust him? Because he is the God of truth, the very source and wellspring of that faithfulness, which is the core and essence of the rich biblical concept of truth, which we see in the person of our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thus he supremely deserves our trust. Meditate deeply on his attributes, especially this one. Especially as it is manifested in the life and death and resurrection of his express image, his faithful and true son. And he will help you learn to trust him as he so richly deserves to be trusted. In summary then, true speaking is mandated by the need for truth. It is rooted in the source of truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is defined by the nature of truth, faithfulness to God that expresses itself in faithfulness to the facts and to the neighbor. It is found in the context of truth, the body of Christ, that pillar and support of the truth, the church. And it leads to the practice of truth through an eschewing of boasting and gossip and through trust in the God of truth. Because Christ is the source of truth, there is an intimate and unbreakable connection between real truth and love. Remember in this passage, Paul talks about this is all so that we speak the truth in love, right? Intimate and unbreakable connection between those two things. Where there is no truth, there can be no true love. Where there is no love, there can be no abiding truth. You're not going to trust God on the level required to enable you to practice truth unless you love him. They inevitably go together. Truth without love is truth distorted. It is ultimately deceptive. And love without truth is love perverted. It is ultimately destructive. This is so even when the truth is factually correct and the love emotionally sincere. But true love and loving truth all come together in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Well did Bacon say that the inquiry of truth, which is the lovemaking or wooing of it, the knowledge of truth, which is the presence of it, and the belief of truth, which is the enjoying of it, is the sovereign good of human nature. This is so because we were created in the image of Christ, who is the truth, and are being restored conform to that image in him. And therefore we can conclude with Bacon again that it is heaven upon earth to have a man's mind move in clarity, in charity, 
rest in providence and turn upon the poles of truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each of you, with his neighbor. Amen. Amen.